This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're catching up with Emmanuel Azapati. Emmanuel is an irrigated hay and vegetable farmer, along with his wife, Catherine, and son, Benjamin, on their property, Dermore, near Forbes. In this episode, Emmanuel talks to us about his farming origins, from farming with his grandparents and parents near Blacktown and Richmond, to how he has expanded his operation to larger farms near Cowra in 2002, and now his current property near Forbes over the past few years. This has given Emmanuel some special insight into planning farm infrastructure projects and what starting from scratch is really like. You'll also hear Emmanuel explain that in recent years, he's been forced to change his enterprise mix from a horticulture dominated to a more broad acre farming focus due to labor shortages and market factors. Emmanuel also shares how watermelon farming is still a passion of his and how he's just waiting for external factors to suit again before he aims to crop watermelons and pumpkins again. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Advisor Rowan Leach sat down with Emmanuel on a windy day at Dermore for this chat about veggie farming. G'day listeners, I'm here with our family farm's neighbour, Emmanuel Azapati. Emmanuel, welcome to the Seeds for Success podcast. How you going? All good. Emmanuel, can you tell me a bit about your farm here at, at Dermal? Well, we bought this farm about five years ago, hoping to expand our sort of farm that we had in, in Cowra, really just to grow watermelons and pumpkins. Sort of faded out a couple of years ago and turned more into hay, purely the fact that they've just run out of workers due to COVID. And we thought we'd take a couple of years off and see how we go. But we're thinking we might just stay doing what we're doing. Yep, and that's more the broad acre side of things, is it? It is, yeah. So we share farm a property at the back of us and we grow a bit of wheat and canola in the off-season and mostly just hay crops, loosen and teff and oat and hay through the summer. Yeah, and you've got irrigation here as well. We do, we do irrigate, yes. Yeah. And how does that differ from your property over at Cowra? Well, pretty much similar, just a bit more in, in a bigger scale where we are here at the moment. But we've been doing it for about 20 years in the Lachlan Valley what we are sort of doing at the moment. Yeah. So how many uh, hectares have you got here at Turmoil? A bit over 200 hectares, a bit over 500 acres under irrigation. And how would you describe the soil types? It's sort of a, it's forgiving soil. It's pretty good. It's enough of what we do anyway, I'd say. Yeah. And um, with the recent floods last year, how were you affected with them? Oh, well, um, not as bad as others. Uh, part of the property did get wet, about 100 acres or so, but you know, we've still got a fair bit of the country that stays dry and we managed to cut hay from the rest of that. We've managed to save what we could. You mentioned employees are hard to come by. Very. Do you have many on, on the books at the moment? No, no, just all at the moment. is just me and my wife and my son. Yep. We manage really good, actually. Like most of the, the work these days dealing with hay is all machinery work too. So all the all the hand, like, like hand work is just, it's all gone. Whereas when you're doing the hort thing, it's... it's Vegetables is very hands-on and do need labour. Yep. And a lot of it too. What's the peak number of people uh, you've had on farm before? We've had about up to 20 people working. Yeah, all in the field. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, if you get the right team, it's uh, it's rewarding. And, and, and 
And if you get the right team and everyone works together, you know, the, the day goes by really quickly and you can enjoy it too. So, Manuel, you've got, is it Maltese Heritage, correct? It is, yeah. yes. So, I'd love to hear the story about your family's origins in Australia. So, when did your family arrive here? So, my grandparents on both sides of my mum and dad came to Australia in the early 50s. Dad was only 18 months old and mum was about two and a half, three years old. Mum came in the late, late 50s, dad came early 50s. So, they pretty much grew up in Australia most of their lives. They were born overseas but raised in Australia. Mark Gardner's back in Malta, both sides, and continued doing the same thing in Australia. So I, I am third generation Mark Gardner. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Cross hemisphere Mark Gardner. That's right. Yeah, yes. yeah. So where did they first settle? Both families sort of settled west of Sydney, what they call Blacktown, Blacktown Quaker Seal. Sort of bought their first farms around that area, pretty much stayed there till the day they retired, really. And kept their farms till it got bought out by housing development. Mum and dad had a farm sort of a bit more west in the in the Hawkesbury. Uh, that's where we sort of grew up and done the same thing there. Grew, grew vegetables and raised in the Hawkesbury. So they, they were already farmers when they moved to Australia. So what sort of crops did they grow in Malta? Pretty much similar to what, what we do here. We used to grow leafy vegetables, so like cabbage, lettuce, spinach, cauliflowers, broccoli. And some potatoes. So we used to grow a fair bit of potatoes. And they used to do exactly the same thing back in Malta, obviously a lot smaller, because a big farm in Malta was, you know, one or two acres. That's the difference. And they just had the opportunity here was there was a, a lot more well, land and yeah, after, scale. After the war and sort of most families sort of migrated to Australia. A lot of families migrated to Australia after yep. the Second World War, yeah. Cool. And then so after Hawkesbury, out to Cowra then? Yeah, so I got married. Got married in... 2000 and I was 21 and I had a eight acre property in, in Sydney just around the corner from my dad and I told dad uh, you know one day when I get married I do want to move to the country and he always said no no you aren't you're just the phase that you're going through and got married 21 and told Kat, I always sort of told my wife that I've got plans to moving to the country and she never really took it seriously and maybe six months after we got married I told Catherine I'm going to put the farm on the market and I'm going to look for a farm in, in Cowra and yeah, she still didn't believe me and did put the farm on the market <laughs> and got interested buyers straight away and sort of settled on a, on a price and we sold the farm and I bought a farm straight away in Cowra. Did she believe you then? With, when you... <laughs> with Catherine kicking and screaming anyway, but yeah, I bought a farm. I thought I had bought a farm, so I had signed and put a deposit on the farm and that sort of fell through. Contracts didn't get signed on the other side, so that fell through. I had sold my farm and that was gone and I had no property to work, so I was sort of stuck without a property for a year. So I had to go move in back with the uh, father-in-law because he had a, a big house. And so we stayed there for about a year working on his farm because he had a, a farm in the Hawkesbury as well. While we were looking for a farm in Cowra and we managed to find a farm, a, a good farm in Billamari. And we ended up buying that about a year later and moved up to Billamari in, I think it was 2002. So how do you think your background and, and family has maybe shaped you to be in the farmer that you are today? Well, we were always going to be farmers. Yep. We were raised in, in the farm. Like we were, as soon as we could walk, we were in the farm. Me and my brothers and sisters, we all liked what we were doing. And most of us to this day are, are farmers. So I've got a brother that, two brothers that farm and a sister that farms as well in the area. And it, I think it did all start from our younger years, like working on the farm and just the love for the land. Oh, that's a good one. I like that answer, mate. Um, I know all your kids, teenagers, are some of the hardest working teenagers I've ever come across. So 
I don't know, sort of the boys, my boys enjoy it. They love the land and we often do say, me and Catherine often say that one day we will go back to Sydney and move back to Sydney, keep the farm. And the kids always say that home is the country. Home is and, and that's And that's where they're staying, yeah. That's good. Yeah. So you've been our farm, our neighbour for about five years now? Five years we've been on this farm, yes. Yeah. So what caused the move from Cowra? Was it opportunity to no, expand? Uh, so I was a partnership with my brother. So we had a 300-acre block in, in Cowra, split in two, and sort of just had a partnership split up. Just the kids were getting older. Both had different ideas. So we decided to split the business, and he done his thing and I did my thing. And sort of, you know, we tried buying more land in the area, but sort of got landlocked by by a big dairy company that moved into the area. It made it hard for us to buy land in the area because we were just competing with this company that had a lot of money. <laughs> a few yeah, more resources. Yeah, than, yeah, and we just couldn't compete. So, uh, you know, decided to look elsewhere. We'll stay in the area, but look elsewhere. We found this farm and they were very keen to buy our farm being next door. So, yeah, that's what we did. They ended up buying our farm and moved to Forbes. So what were you looking for in the new farm? We were looking for a bit more land. We were looking for about five or 600 acres with high security water. We had to have bore water and the majority flood free. And this farm sort of ticked all the boxes. Yeah. I think I remember you telling my dad that you'd been driving past it for about 15 years and thinking, oh, that's a nice little block. You'd had, you'd had your eye on it for a while. I drove past it a fair bit actually and, and always noticed the block sort of empty not getting used much and I noticed there was a bore like the bore was right near the road so I could see the water and it always suited me and one day I just decided to tell a local real estate agent that I knew in in Forbes who owns that block and she told me who owned it and sort of just got talking to the owner and told him that we were interested in looking for a bit of land and looking to move to the area and if he decided if he ever sold it would be interested and that's how it sort of pretty much started yeah yeah you said previous owner it was maybe a bit under underutilized you've really jumped in and thrown out some sheds and uh, put in some pivots and really, all that sort of thing what's been the the hardest part of that sort of expansion it hasn't been that hard the only thing that holds you back sometimes is just money it's just always money you sort of try to improve the farm when things are going well for you like when you're making money so when we were making money we'd try to always invest back onto the farm and there's still a lot more to go to so you must be on pretty good terms with your bank manager then? Yeah, our bank manager was pretty good. We sort of done pretty well from the property in Billamari too. Having the dairy company right next door, yeah, we'd sort of done really well from that farm and sort of just transferred everything back this way. Oh, so have you got any tips for farmers out there on maybe implementing their own infrastructure regime? It's just hard work. Hard work always pays off. And you've got to sort of know what you're doing and be good at what you're doing to make it pay too. So you've got to have an interest. You've got to have a passion for what you do, I suppose, too, to begin with. And it sort of all pays off at the end. So hard work and bit by bit, slowly, slowly, you know, you work your way up. And that's how we sort of done it, slowly, slowly. And just try to improve every year. doesn't always work, but, you know, bit by bit. And if your bank manager sees that you're, you're making money, it gives them a bit of confidence, I suppose. So you also just said that you've gone out of growing veggies a bit because of sort of labour issues. I found it really impressed that you've been able to adapt to basically new enterprises. We've always did grow hay, like from when we did move to Cowra, like Billamari 20 years ago, we always had, always did grow lucerne, but that was always our side crop, you see. 
Your main focus was vegetables, but we always did have lucid. And coming into this was pretty easy for us too because we had good customers and customers backed us and told us they'd be there for us once we transitioned and it has been good. Yep. So long-term customers? I've got some customers that I've been dealing with in Sydney that that I've been dealing with for the last 20 years that I've been delivering hay to. Yeah, yeah. It's been good. What's the importance of those relationships? Well, you do have to grow good hay and you've got to be honest. Like I said, if you've got a problem with your hay, if you've got a bit of weed or, you know, if it's high in moisture, you just be honest. Tell them what it is and they'll just work with it. But always be honest because you only get sort of one chance. If, if you do the wrong thing, they're going to just go somewhere else. Simple as that. Well, are those relationships similar to the ones that you would have had in the horticulture veggie industry? No, the vegetable industry was very different. Like it's very cutthroat. The vegetable industry was, we had customers that we were dealing with for five or 10 years. And if they could find something cheaper that week, a dollar cheaper, they'd just shift somewhere else. There's no loyalty in the market, in the Flemington markets at all. Nothing. We might, uh, we might go down this, this rabbit hole a bit. Looking across the fence and you guys have bloody been hard workers, seeing you out in the paddocks in the middle of summer and picking watermelons and and those sorts of things. It's hard work. Very hard work. And sometimes just the reward isn't there in the end, is yeah. No, well it hasn't been. You know, twenty years ago when we first started growing watermelons in care, it was an it was an excellent crop. Fifty acres of watermelons was a lot of watermelons and you could pretty much grow that crop for the year and not do anything else and it was enough. With the money that we used to make it, it was enough. But, you know, obviously when people start finding out that this is a crop to grow. Yeah, it gets know, a bit more competitive. Other people sort of start coming into the into the industry about 20 years ago. That's when it all sort of kicked off, seedless watermelons. And other people came into the industry and we sort of found that up until about a couple of years ago, we'd have to grow about 150 acres to sort of make the same return as we did on, on 50 acres, it just became too much risk. Like cause growing watermelons was very expensive. And we thought, you know, sooner or later, if, if we, you know, we've spent all this money to grow watermelons, all it takes is a, the wrong bit of weather and you've lost everything. There's no insurance. You can't insure the crop. So it was a high risk crop. It can be very re- rewarding. But the last few years has been really hard with growers growing a lot more these days and, and the market just being just flooded with watermelons in our time slot, you know, December till March, there's just there's too much competition. Yeah, and I know things like listeria with the rock melon industry, like it, yeah, it devastated, it devastated the rock melon industry for a while. Yeah, there, did, yeah. Like growing veggies, this seems very high risk. Is it is there? very, it's very high risk. Yeah, to, everything has to be done perfect. You can't take no shortcuts at all. You're dealing with people's lives, I suppose. At the end of the day, yeah, we've probably talked it down a bit, but is there positives to the hoard industry? Of course there is. I wouldn't be here where I am today without growing vegetables. Like I, I owe everything to what I have from vegetables. And we do hope one day to get back into it. We do like, I love growing vegetables. Every year I say, for the last two years I've saying, you know, when it comes time to planting watermelons, I, I say to my wife, we should be planting watermelons. We should be planting watermelons. But, you know, um, till the workers are back, till everything's sort of settled down, which it is starting to settle down now, till overseas workers can come in naturally and freely, that's when I think it'll settle down because, let's face it, like the, no locals actually want to work in the farm or, or work in the heat, really. It takes our backpackers and overseas workers to cut our fruit and vegetables, to harvest our fruit and vegetables. And if it wasn't for them, and like you've seen it, farmers struggle yeah. in harvesting. They just do. Do you think it's up to the responsibility of industry bodies? or 100%. So it's up to industry bodies to... Make it more easy for overseas workers to come to Australia. 
farmers really struggled, not just farmers, a lot of industries really did struggle without overseas workers. Yeah. And you know, another thing was when they were all that job keeper and job seeker program was out, it made it really easy for people not want to work too. So, you know, where locals could have worked, didn't work, you know, and it was a lot of people struggling. It made it really hard. Yeah. Is there any innovations that industry can do with new technology or picking machines, for example? That There's always people trying to invent new machines to harvest vegetables, but you know, at the end of the day, there are a lot of vegetables and fruit that can't be picked by machines. It have to be picked by the hand, you know, and and it's always going to have to be that way. It's just just is. There are a lot of machines that can harvest fruit and vegetables, but you know, some that there just isn't. What's your favourite veggie crop to grow? I still like my watermelons. Yeah, still so like the watermelons. maybe can you talk me through what's the process of from putting the seed in to picking a have nice right? Have a good bank manager to start off. With. <laughs> uh, we can spend up to three or four thousand dollars an acre to grow watermelons. So you know, from the beginning, like we'll prepare our country in the winter, like start getting the ground prepped, soil tests, very important, get the nutrients in it, all the right fertilizers, whatever we need in the soil before we start preparing the ground. Then it comes, you know, ripping country, rotary hoeing country, trying to get that really nice fine seed bed. We lay drip irrigation to save water, very important, and black plastic mulch to stop the weeds. And then it just gets some plants in the ground. Get some plants in the ground, a lot of work after that. Cross your fingers. Yeah. It's seeing the black plastic laying machines, they're very cool to look at. It's I've, mesmerizing. I've, I've built my own actually. So they're all, most of my machines are I've built my, by myself always had a, a love for welding and we saved a lot of money too by, by making our own machines. Yeah, that is something that dad said to ask me about. He said he's gobsmacked at the ingenuity that you can come up with. What's probably your proudest uh, bit of manufacturing on farm? I suppose in our early years moving to Billamari, we harvested all our watermelons by hand and sort of with a, a tractor with a forklift on the back and the front of the tractor just picking the watermelons and throwing them into the into the crates. And we thought, you know, there has to be an easier way. So we I built these uh, harvest aid trailers with conveyor belts through the trailers and a picking boom. So we, we had people that were picking the watermelons and putting it on the on the conveyor belts. And it was taking the, the melons up to the trailers so we could pack from the trailers. So that made it that made life a lot easier actually. And it was a lot better for us too because we could sort our watermelons out on the trailer and grade it. So, you know, we got better money by grading our, our watermelons. Yeah. So I ended up building maybe about half a dozen of those trailers yep. over my time. And yeah, very proud of, of doing that, actually. Yeah, geez. Were you sort of going off off a rough prototype or, or example well, elsewhere so actually, in, in actually the we, industry? We, or? we sort of started off with a simple machine and always just improving off that, you know, how we can make it better here and better there and better this and better that. And until we got to the right machine, probably about, took me about five years, I'd say, but we ended up building the right machines. You should have put a painting on it, mate, and oh, as a ev- part of everyone, manufacturing. Everyone built machines. Like we all sort of sort of caught on and, and built machines. Yeah, everyone sort of built machines to big watermelons that way after that. Yeah. Yeah, it was the way to do it. And, you know, if something happened to the machine and it broke down for, just say, for argument's sake, we, a belt broke or something, everyone would say, what are we going to do now? How are we going to pick these watermelons? Because we were just so reliant on these trailers. Yeah. The pickers of watermelons are typically some of the fittest people that you've ever very, come across. Very fit. They have to be very fit, actually. Yeah. The Irish sort of stand out a fair bit, actually. Very fit boys. You wouldn't think so, like coming from Ireland, from the cold, a cold background, coming to Australia in, you know, December till March where it's very hot, but they adapted really well. 
and we sort of had Irish boys for about, I'd say, 10 years just from word of mouth. When one group left, they'd call their mates and bring another group and sort of it just went for about 10 years and it was, it was really good actually. It was good. And we've still got some lifelong friends from when we started about 15 years ago. We're still, still in contact with them and it's been really good. Apart from being Irish, what do you look for in a good picker? No, I give everyone a go. I yeah. did give everyone a go. We had this man come once and he was about 56 or 57 years old. And, you know, he looked really rough, very, very thin and small. And he told me one day that he was looking for a job. I could really hardly understand him because he had no teeth. And he really needed the job. And I said, yeah, no, I'll give you a go. And to my surprise, he turned up in the morning and we started picking watermelons and the way he was picking, I said to my brother, because my brother was working with me at the time, I said, mate, this bloke's done this before because he's, he's fitter than us, mate, and, <laughs> and he can pick more than us. And I ended up telling him, I said to him, have you done this before, Kevin? And he goes, yeah, all my life. <laughs> so, you know, I don't judge anyone. I give anyone a go if they can last two or three days because if you haven't picked watermelons before, after the first day, you think you're going to die. And if, you, if you're not dead by the second day, you say, oh, I'll try the third day. And if you, if you last the third day, you're going to be right. Yeah, pretty much. Is it in the back or in the legs or where, where's the it's pain? It's just everywhere. <laughs> it's everywhere. From your head down, like you'll have pain. Till your body gets used to it, you know. Till your body gets used to it. It's like doing anything. Once your body gets used to doing physical work, it all becomes easy after, after a few days. Your body sort of settles in. You could charge people... On an hourly rate for a fitness regime, mate. You know, we had boys that could work 12 hours a day picking watermelons in the heat all day and and then still go for a, a two-hour jog afterwards, just go for a jog. Or if they didn't go for a jog, they'd go and spend an hour in the gym. We'd sort of crawl to the house sometimes and, and these boys would be that fit and go, go to the gym. Yeah. Unbelievable. How do hort crops differ from your broadacre crops or your, your hay crops? So with most vegetable crops that you're dealing with an agent, in the markets, a middleman, uh, you sort of get a crop ready and, and begin to harvest the crop and you'll sort of take the first consignment down to the market and they will see what you've got, what, what the quality is like and you usually agree on the day on a price and most people pay within between 14 to 30 days, most people anyway, but it's all, you know, on the day pretty much. It all depends on the demand. There are times when you can do really well growing vegetables. I suppose. Supply and demand, it's pretty much vegetables, it's supply and demand. Yeah, that's a good point. Mate, I've had a ball today, but for my last question, before okay. I let you go, well done. I like to ask my guests, what do you think the big issue in Australian ag is at the moment? Labour. I'd, say, I'd definitely say labour, 100% labour. If we had a, a constant supply of steady labour, all ag I think would do a lot better. Because you'd be back into Hort. For sure. What percentage profit would you be making or, or cash flow would you be sort of injecting back into the community if you were gro growing veggies? We did move to Cowra and 20 years ago hoping that we were going to employ just locals and try to keep everything in the town. It just didn't work. No one wanted to work. No locals wanted to work. And there was a time, you know, two or three years into it, we decided maybe growing vegetables wasn't the go in Cowra. Like we did think of... Um, of setting up just uh, just loosen and, and stock. We thought, you know, if, if the locals have been doing it all this time, maybe that's what you've got to do. Until one day we met a, a backpacker and that's what sort of got us into the backpackers and, and never looked back since for workers. It's a shame because we did try to keep everything local, but just never worked at all. So have you got any messages for, yeah, industry bodies or government or anything about on ways we can improve the labour pool? 
I don't know, it's very tough. It, it's just, just, just going to be made easier bringing the people from overseas. I think, too, there, there are a lot of countries that aren't allowed to come to Australia and work where they, they should be able to, you know. Like there's a lot of countries that are willing to do it but just can't do it. And if they can, it'd make it a lot easier for everyone. Mate, I've had an absolute cracker of a time with that. It's been really good learning a bit more about your operation, even though I've been looking over the fence for the past four or five years. But, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Not a problem. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time. Mm-hmm.